Welcome to the Life Church Podcast. We're broadcasting from Coralville, Iowa. For more information about Life Church, to watch a live stream, or to find a campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. I got a text this morning uh, from somebody in our church that sent a quote from Billy Graham that I, I thought, wow, this is, this is good. A good father is one of the, mil- of the most unsung, unpraised, unnoticed, and yet one of the most valuable assets in our society, Billy Graham. Dad, you're a valuable asset in our society. Thank you for being a good dad. Amen. Amen. So we're in this series called Eight Hills, where we're talking about the values of Life Church. Eight Hills. We gave the subtext to that is things worth dying for. And so a couple weeks ago we kicked off the series talking about biblical truth, and then today we're going to talk about God's love. Now, when we started the series talking about biblical truth, we said that the challenge was for us to pattern our lives, to organize our lives around the teachings of Jesus. That when we do that, when we allow this book to begin to shape our decision-making, our relationships, our financial world, when we do that, we are setting a solid rock foundation for our lives. Now, the problem with that is that that's my words. And you might say, well, Rich, really? I don't know. And it only gets proven, though, when storms come. And when storms hit and you're standing, oftentimes the very thing that you're holding on to is a truth of God's word. What God says about you, what God says about the world that you live in, what God says about the environment that you're in, you hold on to those truths and you're, being, you're able to withstand the storms of this life. So that's where we started a couple of weeks ago. Now, as I talked about biblical truth, you need to understand that biblical truth is really just one part it's just one part of what I see as two propositions that give us a kind of a better understanding of who God is. And this is the, why we have God's love as our second value. Biblical truth combined with God's love is what makes a life-giving church. And that's what we want to be. We want to be a life-giving church. A church where you walk in and you experience life. And it's a life that's contagious where you come in here and as you experience that life, you walk away saying, I need more of that in my life. I want that not just to be an experience for an hour on Sunday morning, but I want that to be an everyday part of my life. Biblical truth, God's love. These two come together to create a life-giving atmosphere. Now, one without the other leads to extremes. If if it's all about biblical truth and it's not set in the context of God's love, what it leads to oftentimes is legalism, rules and regulations. Some of you understand that very well. Some of you grew up in church. Your stories, you've told me your stories. You've said, I grew up in church where this is how it was. I had to do this, I had to do that, I had to do that to feel any kind of worthiness, to feel any kind of hope of, of salvation, to feel any kind of sense of going to heaven. I had to perform and perform and perform. Biblical truth outside of the context of God's love leads to legalism. On the flip side of that, God's love without this foundation of biblical truth, where biblical truth basically is just something secondary, what happens is we use the truth of God's word just to fit our own agenda. And what works for us, then we believe that. 
The rest we discard. The rest we don't believe. And what that leads to is basically a relative truth, that your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, his truth is his truth, her truth is her truth. And therefore, in that kind of environment, there is nothing rock solid. There is no foundation to hold on to. There's nothing that unifies us. And so it's a combination of God's truth with God's love that actually creates this life-giving environment. It's the two together. And it's the two together that's worth, that coming together is what we say is worth dying for. So here's our second value, God's love. And it goes like this. God's love, the love of God demonstrated through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the focus that we're going to focus in on today. Demonstrated through through the person of Jesus Christ. Radically transforms all aspects of a person's life. So when you have an encounter with God's love, and specifically when you have an encounter with Jesus Christ, It has the potential, it has the power, has the ability to radically transform your life. Now, you hear us talk about love a lot around here, and, you know, we love to talk about love because we we believe it, we've experienced it, it's something that it's a part of us DNA-wise, but for us, it's more than just talk. It's more than just some mushy sentiment or feeling. See, love is a noun, but it's also a verb. It's about action. It's about doing something. And so love fully displayed is love that's in action. In fact, Jesus puts it this way in John 13, 35. It says, your love, Jesus is talking about the love of the Father that is given to his, to, to his disciples and these disciples expressing that love to one another. Your love for one another will prove to the world. Like it's proof, all right? It's proof to the world. Your love For one another is proof to the world that what? We are his disciples. So what happens is when people around us, they see something or they experience something, and if we're followers of his, what they're experiencing is actually the love of God shining through you. And that's an environment that we want. Listen, I've spent the major part of my life, living my life on mission, whether it was missionary in Bangladesh, my family were missionaries in Bangladesh, or whether it was planting a church in a town called Leesville, Louisiana, or whether it's planting this church 15 years ago, Life Church. Um, we spent a considerable amount of time just living our life on mission. Now, one of the things that happens oftentimes when you start talking about church planting or, or, or doing church or being a missionary is that you get kind of get stuck on, on numbers. Like you start talking about numbers, like, like we hope that there is six or 700 people coming to Life Church today. Numbers, right? We talk about financial numbers, like the cost of buildings and all that kind of stuff. And it's easy to get caught up in that. Like I could tell you when I planted a church in Leesville, Louisiana, I could talk about the demographics of that town back in 1985 when we started that church. I could tell you about, you know, the, the specific that we had focused in on planting a church among Puerto Ricans, primarily Puerto Ricans. I mean, there was others that came, but it was primarily Puerto Ricans. By the way, Feliz Dia del Padre, all those Latinos in this place. Okay, good. <laughs> um, I could tell you about those things, right? <clears throat> but that would all be boring. I could talk about the strategies of how to start that church, which we didn't do a very good job at it. But what I'd rather spend more time, and I think what's more transformative is, is, to, is to talk to you about people like Aida Tello, a young lady that walked into our church one Sunday morning. And when I saw her, I knew 
She needed Jesus. She was what they call a New Yorkerican. It's a Puerto Rican that's raised in New York City. And, uh, and Ida walked in. She had a, her parents were into Santeria, which is kind of a witchcraft type of thing from, from the islands. And, and, uh, and they just, they weren't together. It was just a terrible life that she had growing up in New York. And then, um, and then so very early, she started doing drugs. And then after a little while, to be able to support her drug habits, started being, prostituting herself, and she sold her body so she can be able to take drugs. And this is the life that she lived. She finally married a guy who was a drug dealer. I mean, it was just a terrible, terrible story. And then she walks into our church that Sunday morning, and I knew, I knew, I knew she needed Jesus. And I remember preaching, I was like in the middle, I don't know if you even remember the, the, the sermon I was talking about, I was saying, preaching about one thing, and I saw them, they came in kind of late, which is very Latino, um, they came in kind of late, you know, <laughs> during the service, and, 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 so, and so I saw them, and immediately I changed my message, and I started preaching a, a message of salvation, and I mean, I said, I want to pray, and I said, if you want to give your life to Jesus this morning, I want to pray for you this morning, and I, before I even started praying, she starts walking down the aisle with tears rolling down her face, falls, that there was an altar, like a pew altar type thing in the front, she just falls on her face right there, and just cried her eyes out to God, and that day she encountered the love of Jesus Christ, and her life was transformed forever. And Ida became this powerful evangelist in our church. I mean, I use the term evangelist because that's exactly what it was. She wasn't paid in any way to be an evangelist. She just loved Jesus so much that she couldn't help but talk about Jesus to people all around. Later in life, a few years later, because of her, all her IV drug use, she, she had AIDS, and she started dying of that, you know? And so I, I went to visit her in a hospital in, in, in San Antonio, and, um, where she was in the hospital. And I went up to her floor. It was basically, at that time, it was like the AIDS ward. This whole floor was. It was a military hospital. And uh, I went up to that, that floor to see her, and I go into her room, and her husband, Luis, is his name, Luis Deo, was sitting there, and, and I say, hey, where's Ida? She wasn't in the room. He says, Pastor, you got to talk to that woman. And I'm like, what do you mean? She, she just, she's weak, she's sick, but she, every day she gets up, she grabs her Bible, she grabs her little IV cart, and she starts walking up and down the, the hallways, talking to people about Jesus Christ. <laughs> Ida didn't live much longer. She passed away. Those are stories to talk about. In fact, I think if you ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, what was your missions trip like here to earth? Like when you came to earth, you incarnated, you became the son of God, you know, and you lived among us. What was your missions trip like? I don't think Jesus would get into like a whole lot of theological talk. I don't think he's going to tell us statistics. I don't think he's going to talk about how beautiful the temple was. Or he's not going to get into a bunch of doctors. You know what I think he would do? He'll say, hey, let me tell you about a guy named Matthew. He was a tax collector. He was hated by his people. They despised him. And man, Matthew, even though he was rich, even though he had everything, Matthew was empty on the inside. Matthew knew he was a loser. Matthew knew that he had nothing. His life was a wreck. He was a disappointment, and he never believed he would ever be used by God. And yet, hey, let me tell you, Matthew became one of my disciples. That's what Jesus would say. Or let me tell you about this woman that, uh, that she was known in the community as a prostitute, but this woman knew more about 
God's love than the Pharisee whose house I was at eating lunch. I came into this Pharisee's house. He didn't offer to wash my feet. I sat down to have lunch with him, and this woman comes in, and with her tears and her hair, she washed my feet and wiped them clean. She knew more about God's love than this Pharisee did, who knew the scriptures inside and out. You should have seen the look on that Pharisee's face. Or he would say, you know, one day I was preaching and I was in this house and suddenly things started falling on my head and I look up and there's some guys up on the roof and they're digging a hole through the roof. And I'm like, I had to get out of the way because I didn't want anything. And so I get out of the way and they, they finally lower their friend down. It was these four guys. They lower their friend down and their friend had been paralyzed all of his life. And they went to extreme measures to bring their friend to me. That day I gave their friend hope and I, I healed his body. Man, that guy had some really awesome friends. I think that if Jesus was talking about his time here on earth, I think he would talk about the stories of the people he touched. In fact, I think that's what the gospel is really all about. In fact, as I'm telling these stories, just look around, left, right, around you. Every one, of these, every one of you in this room is a story of a collision with God's amazing love. Every one of you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, you're a story of God's love. It's about this beautiful collision where our broken lives and the Savior of this world collide. Now, those two words don't usually go together, beautiful collision, right? I mean, you think of collision as a wreck, as a mess, as painful, as hurting. I mean, that, does, that doesn't go with beautiful. And yet, this is what happens. This is exactly what happens for each and every one of us. That when we, with our mess, with our, with our disgust, with our brokenness, with our hurt, with all of our pain, we collide with the love of God. This is exactly what comes out, is this beautiful collision. God starts this transformative work inside of each and every one of us when we experience his love. This is why God's love is one of the, our values here at Life Church. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you look at this book as basically a set of propositional statements as a rule book to follow, as a list, a, a, play, a book to get lists from so you can make sure you, you follow each and every one of them and you miss the story you're missing God's love. So it's this book in the context of the love of God that makes all the difference in the world. And that's your story and that's my story. I love this book. I love this book. But I love the God of this book even more because he changed my life. It's a beautiful collision. What I want to do today is I want to look, talk specifically of a story in, in the Gospels, and I want to put this story in tension with, with religion. Like, the tension is between religion 
and God's love. It's important for us to understand that because I think this is where we, where we exist oftentimes, is that we, we're, we, we, we go to church and maybe we don't have a full understanding theologically or doctrinally and all that stuff about what church is all about. And so we might very quickly, very easily think, well, I just have to follow all these rules and I'll be okay. And so I wanna read this story of a person by the name of Nicodemus and I want, to, I want to kind of expose a tension between religion and God's love. Um, we're going to look at John chapter 3 to see this story about, about Nicodemus. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court of that day and time. It was made up of 72 men. Um, and these men were made up of two different categories. There was Sadducees and Pharisees. Okay, Sad, Kind of like Democrats and Republicans. That's what it was. And the this, the Sanhedrin was kind of, like I said, kind of like the Supreme Court. It was the law of the land, okay? And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't really get along. There was, they pretty much disagreed on everything except one thing, that Jesus Christ was a threat and that he needed to be eliminated. That's the only thing they agreed on. Everything else, they, some, they, you know, Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. I mean, there was all kinds of things that they just did not agree upon. But they all agreed that Jesus was a threat. There was this rabbi who had been a carpenter, and now he's, got, he's gained popularity, and, and their people are following him all over the place, and, and they're ignoring our teachings because they're following his teachings, you know, so they're jealous, really, of Jesus, and they want to get rid of him, right? Now, a Sadducee would have been a person who, to be a Sadducee, you had to be born into it, okay? I mean, there was other requirements. You had to know the law and all that kind of stuff, but, but also... You had a, it had to be in your bloodline. To be a Pharisee, though, is a little bit different story. A Pharisee was a, was a Jew who had done an incredible amount of studying. He had prepared himself. He had worked. He had done an incredible amount of work. He had earned his way into this, into this position. He was now a lawyer. He was a leader. He knew the law inside and out. He had worked really, really hard. And so today, we're going to meet this Pharisee by the name of, of Nicodemus, and he's part of the Sanhedrin. And we're going to look at John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now, I want you to notice that it's a story of collision, is what we're talking about. Of a religious person who comes face to face with Jesus Christ, who is the epitome of love. It says, there was a man, a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark, one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. And this is what he said. Rabbi, he said... We all know that God has sent you to teach us. That was kind of gutsy for this religious leader to say that because, like I said, they all wanted to get rid of Jesus. They didn't like how popular he was. We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So it's, he, he seems humble enough, right? He seems like he's getting it. It's like he's coming to Jesus and saying, I just need to make sense of this, you know? I don't get it. Like, I worked really really hard to be in this position of leadership and teaching and well you were just a carpenter <laughs> how did you how did you do that so what he's noticing is obviously god is with you but i want you to notice when this collision takes place okay it says after dark one evening why did he come at night that's a good question Maybe he came at night because he was just wanting to avoid the other religious leaders. <laughs> like, they, he didn't want them to see him meeting up with Jesus. That might have been a problem. He didn't want to have to answer questions of, of you know, 
hey, I saw you with Jesus the other day. What's up with that? What did you guys talk about? Maybe that's what it was. Maybe he was trying to avoid a collision altogether, right? Maybe he was trying to avoid a collision altogether because he didn't want it to affect his job. He didn't want his income to be hit. Maybe he wanted to be able to follow Jesus secretly and just never have a collision at all. But what we're going to notice here in this story, we're going to discover very quickly, is that a collision is going to happen. And let me just say this. When we come, and in Sunday mornings, I know, I know we have a very ritualistic routine here on Sunday mornings where you know, we have songs and I preach, and then you drink coffee, and then you go home. <laughs> you know, I get that. That's normal. But I hope that you understand that for, from our perspective and from my perspective specifically, what I try real hard to do is speak a word where Jesus is speaking to you and there's a conversation not between Pastor Rich and you, but a conversation between the Holy Spirit and you. And in every context like that, in every single situation like that, when there's a conversation between the Holy Spirit and you, a collision is happening. Something is stirring. Something is going to happen. Choices, decisions are being made. And so this collision is going to happen, right? And so Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't mince any words. He just answers Nicodemus' question even before he asks the question. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, Jesus replied, like Nicodemus came in and said, hey, man, you, you're really, you, you must be somebody because you have all these miracles and signs and wonders and I really like the fact that you do that and I'd like to know more, you know, how this is. Like he's curious and then Jesus just jumps right into it. He says, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And let me remind us all that this is being said in the context of a story about a man named Nicodemus. So imagine how Nicodemus hears this. He has spent countless hours studying to have the right degrees. He's meticulously followed the letter of the law so that his religious resume is impeccable. He has faithfully tithed. He has been faithful in the temple. I mean, he even volunteered in children's ministry if they had it. Right? I mean, he has done everything right so that he can enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus just basically totally upends that. And Jesus says, yeah, no, you need more. <laughs> Not really more. <laughs> you must be born again. None of that's going to get you into heaven. And so this is what I want you to catch in this very brief conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Is that the intersection of religion, at the intersection of religion and Jesus, is where achieve and receive collide. The intersection of religion and Jesus is where achieve and receive collide. You see, religion tells you, and some of you grew up like this, is that you have to achieve it. You have to achieve it. Like you have to work hard for it. Like it's not gonna just be given to you. You really have to make sure you come in and you, you do the right stuff. You be at church faithfully and tithe and do this and do, do all those things. And I'm not telling you don't do those things. The Bible doesn't say don't do any of that stuff. The Bible actually encourages us to do that, but the, fault, the, the faultiness of our mindset is that we think by doing all of that, somehow or another, I get in good with God. I'm achieving it. I'm working hard at it, right? That's what religion does. But Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. 
You need to receive the gift that I've given you. That's what you need to do. You need to receive it. <laughs> this is hard for Nicodemus to hear because he has spent his entire life achieving. Like he was respected. People talked, oh, look at Nicodemus. There he goes. Ooh, look how, look how nice he's dressed. Man, you should have seen the other day when he was teaching out of the scriptures. He, was, he just knew the stuff. He's an amazing lawyer. He has spent his life achieving. He has stuffed his pockets with religious currency and he shows up with Jesus and he pulls out that religious currency and says, hey, what about this? And Jesus says, eh, I don't take that. We don't use that money here. What you need to do is you need to receive the gift of God. You see, the Bible even tells us that our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's of no value. It's of no value. It's nothing that we can stand upon or build. Our, I mean, we, in, the, in the human sense, we do it, right? In the human sense, we, we just really try to be very righteous. And maybe you do. Maybe you do follow the letter of the law. And you might feel better because you kind of do it better than that person. <laughs> it doesn't get you into heaven. Now this may be hard for somebody here because you've probably spent your entire life trying to achieve. And maybe you feel good about yourself that you've achieved. I'm glad you have. and I'm glad you've tried to walk a narrow road. I'm glad for all of that. But don't, don't for one second think that that's what gets you into heaven. Don't for one second think that God prefers you over somebody else just because you've done all of those things. For others of you, you're hearing this and you're like, man, that's good news because my pockets are empty. <laughs> I'm spiritually broke. I have nothing to offer God. And I'm so thankful that I don't have to achieve it because I've tried and tried and I just don't do a very good job at it. So Jesus says, no. Nope. What I want for you is for you just to come just the way you are, right? It's not something you achieve, it's something you receive. Now, this should be good news for all of us, really, because it's freedom. It's freedom. Freedom that it's not based on your merit that you have a ticket to heaven. I know. I already hear those sounds. There's a lot of religious folk in here saying, wait, 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 wait a minute, Rich. Okay, you, get, you, just, you need to qualify that, okay? Qualify that. Certainly, you're telling us we had to do something. Listen, it's not based on your merit that you have a ticket to heaven. It's by his grace and his grace alone. And that should sound as freedom to us because it's not about what you can do, but rather what he has done for you. You get to experience, you and I get to experience the Father's love not having deserved it. Do you remember that? Remember the day you met Jesus for the very first time? Most of us would say, I didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it one bit. I was lost. I was a loser. I was on drugs. I was a, a, a fornicator. I was an adulterer. I mean, you could go on and on and on. And yet, I met Jesus and I collided with him. And something beautiful came out of that. I don't have time to spend on the rest of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, but um, it's, it's kind of interesting because Jesus basically gives a theology lesson to this religious expert, this 
this religious theologian. Um, and then he kind of concludes. He concludes with this statement, <clears throat> which most of us are very familiar with, of how you and I have access to the Father. Why it is that it's not about your achievement, but it's about you receiving, okay? It's a familiar verse for all of us, but I want you to understand that it's not a theological proposition. It's a story. It's a part of the story in the context of the story of Nicodemus, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world. Let's, uh, Let's personalize that. For God so loved Rich. For God so loved Wayne. For God so loved every single one of you. That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or have eternal life. Listen, the father has loved you. We have a saying around here that says come just as you are but don't stay that way. And that affirms this belief in God's love. You don't have to come to the doors of Live Church and check yourself and say, okay, have I met the minimum requirement to walk into that building? <laughs> you don't have to do that. That's not how God operates with you. The only requirement is hunger. The only requirement is desire. The only requirement is wishing and hoping for a new life. And guess what? You can come just as you are. And we add the part, second part, don't say that way because what we believe is that when you have this collision with Christ, there's this transformation that begins to take place in your life. I love it. This transformation begins to take place and it starts to change you, change the way you think, change the way you live, change the, way you, the things that you believe, the people you hang out with. And nobody's out there hitting you over the head, don't do this, don't do that. What's happening is you have fallen in love with the eternal God, Jesus Christ, and your life is being transformed. And who you have always meant to be is being realized. I'm going to tell you a story of a, of a woman. Her name is Karen Green. We're going to see her story here in a second. But this is a, a powerful story of the collision of, a, of our mess and God's love. Take a look. Shall I say it wasn't a happy childhood. My mom worked morning and she worked evenings, which left us uncovered. And a lot of things happened. A lot of things happened. I can remember uh, her leaving us under the care of uh, my neighbor next door. He used to tell me all the time that I had big, pretty legs, you know. And I can remember him um, asking me, won't you let me touch you? And uh, when he did, you know, he gave me money and, and there was a store up the street and I went up and got candy. Then there came a time where he said that, you know, I want you to let Louis uh, lay on top of you. And I did, and I did. From there, the spiral began. By the time I reached the age of 13, I had a baby myself. And my mother got very angry. She had a boyfriend. I remember the boyfriend making advances at me. And instead of her dismissing him, she dismissed me. I ran into this guy. We got together. And I felt like he would 
take care of me and my son. I allowed certain things to happen. He hit me, you know, he, he put guns to my head. Surely he took care of us, but it came with a big price. These men were like 50, 60s. She would ask me, well, how much money did they give you? Did, did he give you some money? And I would tell her, yeah, you need to give it here, you know? So I would give it to her. I ran into this guy. He took me in and uh, he fed me drugs, crack cocaine. My son, he seen all of this. I was very angry. I had 13 assault cases. I was sick of everything. It just really didn't matter. You know, I needed money to survive. I remembered how, you know, I went out with the older men. It was just and how they would give me money. Crazy. This is the way I lived my life. Men were the way that I bought my food, were the way that I paid my rent. This had gotten so bad. The street in men is all I knew. It got worse and worse. I didn't know anything else but to go to the street. Not only support my habit, but to make sure my son ate. And uh, I remember walking into a Dairy Queen and I asked him to feed my baby. And the lady told me, she said, anytime your baby's hungry, you bring him here and I'll feed him. I knew I had to do something to get my son up off the streets. You know, I would pray, literally pray, when I was out there. I remember going to get the drugs, doing what I had to do, prostitution, getting the money, coming back, getting the motel room, throwing the drugs on the bed, and asking God, please, please help me. After I got through praying, I would pick the drugs up and just continue to use. It came a point where I was just tired. I was so tired of my life. I was so tired of hurting. I was so tired. I knew they had a warrant for my arrest, you know. And uh, I asked the lady behind the desk, I said, don't you have a warrant for my arrest? And she looked at me and started laughing. I said, I just want to turn myself in. She said, baby, I can't find the warrant. I said, no. The one is there, it's there, it's there, it's there. In my mind, you say, you got this hot $20, you might as well go on back out this door and go on and get you, get you another hit and just go on. They can't even find a warrant. But something inside of me said, just sit there. And I sit there. And I sit there. And she said, baby, I found it. I said, thank you, Lord. Thank you. And you know, I told God, I can't even see the time that they're talking about. I can't even see 25 to life. But God, whatever you do, I don't want to go back out here the same way I came in. Please help me. And I remember, that's when my life in the change. That's when I surrendered. Because I didn't know nothing else to do. They had church down there. Church, I didn't do church. But just to get out of the dorm with all those women, I, I went to church. I began to hear what the pastor was saying. How so many times when we're in the um, when we've been through so much in our life, it becomes a cover and it covers our souls. 
you know, and it just, our souls begin to be just, it's just dark because there's so much that is covering our souls. But he said what the Spirit of God does and the Word of God does, it, be, it comes in and it begins to peel back the covers. And what happens is your soul begins to get light and you begin to gain strength where you can live. And when he said that, I said, God, this is what's happening. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. I knew I had to change, but I didn't know how to change. And God, through his word, began to teach me how to change. I said, God, if you are God, and if you're the God that they say you are, God, change me. Change me. And he did just that. He changed my life. My name is Karen, and I am second. Amen. Let's all stand. Karen Green today runs a ministry called Haven of Love in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where she essentially reaches out to women just like she was and tells her story of this collision of love, this beautiful collision that happened between her, her mess, and God's love. My suspicion is that there might be some of you in this room right now that the Holy Spirit is talking to you and there's a collision about to happen and you have to make a decision. What we're going to do here in a minute, um, if you're here, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, Cedar Rapids, if you've sitting there and you've never given your life to Christ, we want to walk this journey with you. You may not be in the situation that Karen was in. That's not, maybe that's not your story. Maybe your story is a completely different story. But you've never experienced the love of God in your life. We want to walk this journey with you. You take this card. You just fill it out on the back. Just give us your name, some details of your, of your inf contact information. And then let us know that today you gave your life to Jesus Christ, that today this beautiful collision happened between your mess and God's love, and God just wants to start this transformation work in your life, amen? I really want to be able to walk this journey with you. Maybe you're here, and, and you're already a follower of Jesus Christ, but maybe one of the things that happens to us followers of Jesus Christ is that we forget where we came from. We forget about that collision that happened in our life at one point. This week I was talking to somebody, and she was trying to... She was, I don't do very well at receiving compliments. You know, she was trying to compliment me on something and I was like, yeah, okay. But very quickly, I felt like just, maybe it's because I'm really studying for this stuff, but very quickly, I just, it was like, what is it that keeps me rich green? What's that keeps me centered? What's it, what is it that keeps me from really thinking too much of myself? <laughs> I never forgot I never forgot when that 19-year-old drug-addicted, lost kid without father whose mother was working all the time 
collided with the love of Jesus Christ. I never forgot it. In fact, it's present with me all the time. And it's what keeps me from thinking, like I said, thinking too much of myself because you know what? I came into this with nothing. My pockets were empty. I had nothing to give. And all I did was just receive what he gave for me, the wonderful gift of grace and salvation. And that's what God wants for each and every one of us in this room. Amen. Amen. In a minute, we're going to sing a song. And our prayer teams are here on the left and right. I want to encourage you to step out. God is speaking to you. If there's something you need to pray about, just step out. They want to serve you. They want to pray with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, God, for your presence, your power in this place. I thank you, Lord, that your love collided with us, with our mess, with our brokenness, with our hurt, with our pain. And you transformed our lives, much like Karen Green. That's what you've done for us today, Father. Those that are here, Holy Spirit, that you're tapping, that you're speaking to, Father, may they take, have courage to step out, to either give their life over to you, surrender completely to you, or to step out and ask for prayer, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.